At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club. This month, we'll be talking about Michael Lewis's The Big Short Inside the Doomsday Machine. I'm joined today by Dan Gross, business columnist for both Newsweek and Slate, and Troy Patterson, the television columnist, critic for Slate Magazine. Dan, nice to see you. Good to be here. Troy, wonderful to see you. How you doing, Steve? By way of very quick introduction, 20 years ago, a young man with a a BA in nothing more than art history from Princeton University stumbled upon the great 1980s bull market and thereby one of the great financial stories of all time, really. He wrote a very engaging, fetching memoir. I think it completely still holds up, having recently reread a lot of the supposed business classics of the 1980s. Liar's Poker is still a delightful book from beginning to end. 20 years later, Michael Lewis was inspired to uh, write about how shocked he was that that a situation that he perceived as completely unsustainable managed to sustain itself quite handsomely for the subsequent 20 years. The Wall Street boom, he felt, was discredited on its face by the fact that it was willing to reward him for giving advice to people twice his age on a subject he knew nothing about. Troy, before we dig in on the book, let's talk a little bit about uh, possible conflicts of interest, because Michael Lewis was once affiliated, may still be, with Slate Magazine. He was indeed. And in fact, this uh, The Big Short is dedicated to Michael Kinsley, who is the founding editor of this magazine. And The Big Money, our sister site, uh, ran an excerpt of the book. And he has been a Slate contributor. A further note on a slightly different topic that the first sort of big glossy magazine feature I ever wrote was a profile of Michael Lewis. Ten years ago, when uh, The New New Thing, his book about uh, Jim Clark, the Netscape founder Jim Clark, came out. And he was a good interview. 
All right. We'll bear all that in mind when we discuss his book, I'm sure, very frankly. Um, I think we can uh, begin this in two parts. Part one, let's consider the facts that went into the creation of the book, the story behind it. And Dan, you're invaluable for that. And then we'll move on to our general feelings, maybe about Michael Lewis, the journalist. But let's begin with the, with the story. A CDS, a CDO, a credit default swap, a collateralized asset-backed security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is an alphabet soup. They're designed in some ways to be opaque to the layperson, which both Troy and I are. Why don't you start us off by describing the uh, financial background of the story uh, and what led up to um, Lewis's book? You know, what distinguishes The Big Short from so many of the other crisis books, of which there have literally been dozens, is that so much of it focuses on the losers because there were so many damn losers to choose from. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, the Federal Reserve, the policymakers, the homeowners, the mortgage industry. What he went out and did was find a few people who managed to make a lot of money during the meltdown because they were short, i.e. they were betting against the value of the mortgage complex and mortgage bonds. And it's either to his credit or his own dumb luck that he found people who were interesting characters to boot. Uh, There aren't a lot of people on Wall Street are actually quite boring. They're interested in money. They're not introspective at all. They don't have great stories to tell. He manages to weave a narrative out of these guys and how they happened upon, and it was a sort of process of stumbling their way to this thing that presented itself that if they go short these instruments, they could make a lot of money if it all collapses. To back up for the sake of anyone who's not aware, we should quickly explain what a short sell is. Right. Someone who sells something short, you you borrow a security, you sell it, and then you hope to buy it back at a lower price later. Or you use options and other types of financial instruments to effectively place bets that will pay off if assets fall. And these people had a central insight. Uh, there, are sev- there are several of them. At the center of the book is, as he puts it, a one-eyed guy with Asperger's. I mean, a man who's virtually a shut-in, who's perfectly happy to spend his day uh, on the internet and and perusing 10Ks and, and 10Qs. And what all these people converged upon was a basic thesis, which is that there was a massive architecture of mortgage-backed securities that had been carefully packaged and sold off to third parties by Wall Street and rated AAA by the bond rating agencies. They were thought to be platinum quality debt instruments. And that they were, the the central insight was that this giant machine was premised on a false premise, what turned out to be a false premise, which is that U.S. housing prices never go down. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in unison, nationally, historically, they'd never been demonstrated to actually lose value. And as long as that premise held up, the theory went, these debt instruments were safe. And that was a false premise. And as it turned out, once the once the false premise was kicked out underneath this magnificent edifice, the entire edifice implodes 100%. Absolutely. But there was also, I think what's interesting about this, there was no obvious way to get short these bonds. The momentum and the institutional power, every big Wall Street firm, the federal government, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, these government-sponsored enterprises, they were all behind this. And ultimately, the credit of the United States government was behind it. So it wasn't like a regular company where you could say, hey, it might fail. There was so much positive momentum behind it that there was almost no way to get short. And what these characters in the book do is they seize upon these products that are being offered um, as innovations and sort of latch onto them as ways of you know buying insurance 
on these bonds, uh, these subprime mortgage bonds, and they basically convinced Wall Street to sell them the insurance. It wasn't like they sort of went into the store and they were on the shelf. Wall Street firms had to be sort of convinced and goaded into selling them the insurance, which they were happy to do because they figured they would never have to pay off, and this was easy money Sucker, for them. Sucker's bet. I mean, they, they you know, they, they felt like they had done the math, and this was all, uh, in, in, you know, that in fact these were bulletproof <clears throat> securities. So sure, we'll, we'll take a fee on this. We'll sell you some product, whatever. It's just good flows directly to our bottom line. They turned out to be spectacularly wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. And made hundreds of millions of dollars for being spectacularly wrong. But one of the sort of haunting things about the book is that despite the fact that this made them rich, everyone's faith in democratic capitalism is entirely shaken. And I suppose that the the whole bet is what well, you would call it a cynical one if the cynicism weren't well-deserved. The book's a little bit ambiguous about whether sort of the people dealing in subprime mortgages are corrupt or stupid or both, or at least that's the way I read it. Troy, I read this book as a deeply, and Dan, I'm curious to hear what you think. I read this book as a deeply cynical book and and one that's almost openly uh, open about the depth of its cynicism. I wouldn't I wouldn't equate the Michael Lewis brand as a journalist with cynicism necessarily. In some ways, I think he's been – I think he's an, he's an incredible talent. He's almost like a Mozart in a weird way. There's an effortlessness to it that galls anyone else who attempts to make a living writing about complicated subjects. Nonetheless, you know he's not he's not a cynic. He's not someone who who looks to see through the you know veil of the world to the you know be, beating heart of venality uh, beneath uh, beneath everything. But in this book, um, because he's able to tell the story that makes the book a bestseller, which is how someone's a, a, a visionary and a genius, which is the classic Michael Lewis story, the, the, the lone individual capable of perceiving value where no one else does. This is the premise of Moneyball, mm-hmm. his book about Billy Bean uh, you know, picking uh, baseball players up on the cheap. He's able also to put in an enormous amount of open cynicism about the nature of Wall Street, that, that effectively uh, it's all about ripping off the person on the other end of the trade. And, and But beyond that, it's about creating products that are on their face, completely inscrutable, intended to be completely inscrutable, so that you, and this is to borrow language from the book, so that you absolutely fuck over the person on the other end of the phone over and over and over again. And I, I was actually slightly surprised by that. What'd you make of it? Well, I see, you know, you see the arc of Lewis's writing career that started in the 80s with Liar's Poker and then, you know, books on the 96 presidential campaign, The New New Thing, The Big Short, Moneyball, uh, The Blind Side. And you see his tone go from sort of bemusement irony detachment, which he kind of starts off with like, hey, what am I doing here? This is some whack stuff going on. Continues through that book on on Jim Clark and Netscape is, again, there's sort of madness all around us. Here's this guy in the middle of it. But then in the last decade, kind of going more towards earnestness. Moneyball is sort of a straightforward story about how these guys who use numbers to analyze baseball have a competitive advantage. And the blind side is a a feel good, right. you know, turned into a feel good movie. So it goes from bemusement, detachment to engagement, earnestness, and I detect like a little bit of sort of anger in in this oh, book. Yeah, I agree. Not so much cynicism, but like you know, can you believe they're still doing this same crap? I don't find this quite funny anymore because 
20 years older. You see the impact this has. You have a greater appreciation for the impact this has on real people Mm -hmm. and for sort of the system as large. As crazy as things were in the 80s, the collapse of the junk bond market then had nowhere near the macroeconomic impact that this housing bubble had today. So it's it's a different sort of episode that he's dealing with. This is much more like a natural, not a, na- a man-made disaster. Oh, absolutely. I mean, academic literature is still split on whether the junk bond crisis even led to the SNL mm-hmm. crisis, much less the recession of whatever it was, 1991. The magnitude here is of a completely different order. And what I find so unique about the moment we're wading through right now and are completely in the middle of is is Wall Street has been, to my mind, I may be wrong about this, Troy, I'm curious to hear what you think. I feel as though Wall Street's been discredited to the exact degree it was after the 29 crash. I mean, maybe not not fully to that extent, but almost to that extent. The idea of financiers as uh, public-interested visionaries, you know, regulators of free market and rational allocators of capital to uh, necessary uh, private enterprises, I, I, I don't think anybody believes that anymore. But the knock-on effect of the 29 crash was government had to come to the rescue in an enormous way and and by muscling aside Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And, and no one made a fortune on Wall Street for the following certainly, I mean, you could argue up until the 80s, no one made a fortune of that size, but certainly for 30, 35 years, no one made made a fortune on Wall Street. And now we have, they have all the money and none of the public credit. And, we're, and I think they'd rather have the money. Well, they don't, they, <laughs> they don't care, they, they don't care but, they're, but they're learning this incredible lesson, right? They're learning this Nietzschean, we, we are the Nietzschean gods we thought we were. We can now laugh openly in the public's faces and no one, no one has enough uh, social capital anymore to reprimand us or, or punish us in a, in a real way. True, <laughs> but there's a there's a dichotomy here because on uh, you encounter, I mean, generally the, the type of people in the book and what Lewis is very good at is that a lot of people on Wall Street they just they have no concern for anything literally beyond money. That's what they value. Uh, so if you take it away from them or they lose it, then their self esteem suffers. There is, however, a class and has always been a class of. Bankers who, you know, like the actors who want to direct, who want to be players in public policy and visionaries, uh, Bob Rubin, Pete Peterson, they, uh, Felix Rowatin, Steve Ratner, I mean, all these characters that are sort of known to in New York City of guys who want to be players in the literary and cultural and political world. Those are the ones who have been sort of crushed and humbled by this because they are not permitted in the public sphere. And if you saw at these hearings where Chuck Prince, the CEO of Citigroup, who was sort of regarded as a loser then and a loser now, and no one cares what's happened to him. But Bob Rubin was the interesting one because he was you know, the Democratic Party's chief financial mind. All his protégés are in positions of power, still sort of a, a wise man of the Democratic Party, and they were just going off on him. So it's the the sort of public-minded investment bankers, the ones who want to be remembered more for just having made some money trading, whose social capital has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Troy, let's talk a little bit about Michael Lewis, the journalist and storyteller. He tells stories so well, so facilely, and so uh, beautifully with the reader's interests and attention span in mind. I sometimes don't trust him. So I have to admit, when it comes to Michael Lewis, I'm slightly cynical. Talk me out of it. I can't think of a journalist who uh, sort of combines talents for storytelling and uh, sort of facility with numbers um, better than he does. In the big short, that serves him especially well because it's it's precisely the 
the same thing that makes these people interesting as characters um, that Lewis would have us believe sort of gave them the the sort of insight to be I almost said counterintuitive, but that's wrong. To be intuitive, <laughs> just not to be deluded by the, but by the sort of groupthink and irrational assumptions of um, these other folk. There's a passage in this book I want to read. There's a great. It's sort of the centerpiece of the book. Is um, this um, sort of subprime? There's some terrific euphemism for it, uh, but there's a subprime mortgage conference in. Uh, in Las Vegas, and they're all staying at the Venetian. And I, I suppose it's a little easy to um, talk about the, the sort of the dazzle, to equate the dazzle and the irrationality of a Las Vegas casino with the sort of even more dazzling and irrational uh, casino that it is sort of this type of bond trading. But it nonetheless works. One of the reasons I'm interested in this passage. I think earlier in his career, eight or ten or twelve years ago, Michael Lewis was a bit more uh, heavily indebted to Tom Wolfe, which in some ways is great in terms of um, sort of learning how to sort of structure a narrative and make sort of personalities speak to bigger issues. But also he came out a little too strong with the exclamation points and ellipses and uh, italics. Nonetheless, as I toggle back and forth, um, he does – one of the better things he takes away from Wolf is um, attention to status details. Mm. And so what I'm going to read – I'm going to read you this passage that's on page 156. Uh, and it's going toward how the lowest status people <coughs> at this uh, conference at the Venetian are the um, – sort of the people from – Moody's and Standard and Poor's, who are supposed to be the sort of uh, crossing guards, right? Mm-hmm. They're supposed to give the bonds these these uh, yeah. They're supposed to rate these bonds, which they do almost deliberately. Or would you say certainly deliberately? An awful job of. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, The entire industry had been floated on the backs of the rating agencies, but the people who worked at the rating agencies barely belonged in the industry. If they roamed the halls, they might be mistaken just for some low-level commercial bankers at Wells Fargo or flunkies at mortgage lenders such as Option 1, 9-to-5ers. They wore suits in Vegas, which told you half of what you needed to know about them. The other half you got from the price of those suits. Just about everyone dressed business casual. The few guys who were actually important people wore $3,000 Italian suits. One of the mysteries of the Wall Street Mail was that he was ignorant of the finer points of couture, but could still tell in an instant how much another Wall Street Mail suit had cost. The rating agency's guys wore blue suits from J.C. Penney with ties that matched too well and shirts that were starched just a bit too stiffly. And, you know, that ability to sort of be what we at Slate would call sort of meta mm-hmm. in the middle of a narrative is, I think, a lot of what sets him apart. It's a lot about self-confidence of a writer. It's also about, you know, the place you write for because a lot of the crisis books were written by people, reported at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions, but you talk to people, the editors of the New York Times magazine, their response about the, the, the papers, the writers at the paper, they can't write, by which they mean they can't write long-form magazine pieces. And when you read the books by the... I mean, the, the people at the Journal, the Times, the FT, they would have made something, you know, they would have showed some of the, you know, 
pointed out the fact that it was at the Venetian, and there's a casino inside and a casino outside, and you know highlighted a few of the sort of obvious things that any of us would have noted. This ability to sort of step back and be telling a story about the story in this way is something he does that if you look through 20 other crisis books, you really won't see. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, let's let's bear down then a little bit on the book that, that, that he wrote and talk about Michael Burry, who's at the center of it. Uh, Dan, tell us a little bit about who he is, and, and you know the world uh, that, that someone like Burry operates in far better than we do. Tell us whether you find that portrait uh, credible, and, and are there really Burrys out there, and what do you make of Burrys? insight that made him rich. So this guy was a physician. He trained as a doctor. He had lost an eye when he had been sick as a child and had always had sort of social problems. He couldn't, which he chalked up to having only one eye. He had difficulty looking people in the eye. He had difficulty with basic social graces. He would obsess about numbers. And in the 90s, he started basically posting on message boards about stock investing in the middle of the night. And the market being efficient, people discovered him and started following him and ultimately got sort of financial backing from one of the aristocrats of the New York City hedge fund world, uh, a guy named Joel Greenblatt at Gotham Capital, set him up in this hedge fund in California. And this is the guy who turns out has Asperger's. And there's a, a quote in the book that, you know, that he says only a guy with Asperger's would read through the subprime uh, mortgage. And he discovers this because he has a child who's diagnosed with this. And he realized when he's reading the diagnosis that it all fits him to a T. So that, you know, in, in order to have a sort of a view, a skew on what was going on, this guy physically and neurologically, and, you know, he was an outsider in every geographically. He only had one eye. He didn't go to Wall Street. He was had Asperger. You know, all these things are what we think you know enabled him uh, to come up and and have the fortitude to not just say I'm going to short everything, but I'm going to continue shorting it for several years, even while it doesn't go down. And he got crosswise with his investors who wanted their money back because he was supposed to be buying value stocks, and it turned out he was buying all these exotic instruments. Um, so even though he was vindicated uh, in the end, his Investors were still mad at him, and I mean, you could look at that and say, "Well, this is a isn't this all a little too neat?" You know, the guy with the the one-eyed Aspergers. There were more boring conventional figures who saw through this as well. There's a, a book called "The Greatest Trade Ever," written about this hedge fund manager named John Paulson, who's just a standard issue. Up, lived on the Upper East Side in a townhouse. You know, wore suits just like everybody else. Was part of this whole, but had not been distinguished and figured that this was going bad and made, you know, a couple billion dollars on this. Personally. Not as a not as nearly as compelling a character as these guys. Yeah. Uh, I'm also interested in the fact that they're if I'm not repeating myself that their their sort of social maladroitness is uh, sort of an important part of their perspective. It's said uh, early on about another character here, Steve Eisman, who's fantastically sort of abrupt and tactless. Uh, his own <laughs> wife says of him, uh, he's not tactically rude, he's sincerely rude. And I think it says something that for, you know, despite the um, commonly held idea of Wall Street guys as jerks blowing cigar smoke in strippers' faces, um, that it's the, the sort of the genuine rudeness of of these guys that um, sort of gave them the, the fearlessness to you know, shout in people's faces at meetings. 
Mm. But I also have to say that in my you know years of reporting and living in New York, that I have come across people, including people who are close to me, that actually resemble the one-eyed Asperger's guy. You meet people in the quantitative world, uh, people who just have a sort of different take and have been very successful as a result of it. I don't think that is a, that may be a stock character, but it is not a fictionalized one. Mm-hmm. I think it does. You know, the thing about Wall Street and especially these investment banks is that it's you know, it's like a big club. You have to dress a certain way. You have to act a certain way. Who you know, and you have to behave in a certain way. The behavior is not about not swearing or not saying profane things. The behavior is about not going up against the consensus. Mm-hmm. It's always a good time to buy. I mean, that's you watch CME, you know, whether the market's up, hey, there's momentum, buy. Market's down, hey, it's a dip, buy the dips. You can't be a, a contrarian inside the house at Merrill Lynch. Mm. So let's let, so to abstract from that a little bit, Dan. There, there basically there are two ways to make big money, right? There's the one is to be a toll taker at a big toll taking house, and you go with the consensus, or a salesman, or a middleman, or however you want to put it, or just uh, be anywhere in the middle of a bull market. Be, be anywhere in the middle of a bull market, create new products, pump them, push them, sell them, and take basically bank enormous fees, right? Mm-hmm. And the second way to make it is to be a contrarian or someone who sees the, fades the market, sees the trend can be f- fought against, sees sees bubbles when they're starting to form, has an exquisite sense of either value or timing or both, right. uh, and and you make a killing sort of as a lone wolf. And and uh, Lewis makes a great point of saying that Warren Buffett has so, uh, that Warren, that Buffett there's something socially uncommon about Buffett, uh, and and their brains seem torqued in slightly a slightly odd or different yeah. way, but. Troy, let me ask you this. I, I'm curious what you, what you make of this. Americans love uh, people who make money in general, and they, they, they love reading about people who make money, and they like moralizing the making of money. They like being able to trace fortunes to uh, character traits. I guess it goes back to our Puritanism, whatever it goes back to. You mean this in like a Protestant work ethic kind of way? I, but I think the Protestant work, work ethic may have been the origin of it, but it's been mutated so far that it's completely beyond what, you know, uh, Weber had in mind, you know, when he when he named it that. But regardless of how far it's mutated, there's still an impulse to read about someone who's different, somewhat blessed, uh, but also somewhat cursed, and therefore it's also a story of overcoming, and this is how they arrive at a, at a large fortune. And what interests me about this book is that it seems to be both Puritan genres in one. It's both the Jeremiah. It says we're we're fallen, we've fallen away from our best ideals of ourselves, and we've given over enormous power and certainly money to people of absolutely no conscience whatsoever. But it's also the the uh, Puritan inspirational, like. You know, the, w- given the right point of view and the right work ethic and the right consciousness, one can still make a gigantic fortune in, in America. And I wonder what le- this b- book is a huge blockbuster. It's a huge bestseller. What what lesson are people taking away from reading it, Troy? Yeah, give me a couple of minutes to think that <laughs> well, over. I actually think this is sort of a different form of the the classic sort of contrarian. Right. So you know you have the the empire builders, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, who created you know vertically integrated industries out of nothing. And that was one way to make a generational fortune. Or Henry Ford. You know you you build something from zero. Uh, once an economy is developed, there are kind of limited effort, abilities to create entirely new industries overnight. So then it becomes, well, you know, you can build, uh, or you can take things that are busted and bring them back. 
Uh, and this is a story about people who were selling when everybody else was buying. Some of the other great business stories in, in history and the icons are people who bought when everybody else was selling. Mm. And that's Warren Buffett, but these turnaround artists like you know Lee Iacocca, you know, it's Peter Uberoth taking over the Los Angeles Olympics, this class of vulture investors, people who come in and swoop in on companies when they're bankrupt and restructure them. Um, a generation ago, you heard those people talked about in the same way that these short sellers were. Mm. They were uncouth. They didn't dress right. They didn't care for the nicety of things. There was, you know, they were not part. They liked bankruptcy. They wanted these things to go bad. And they can get in there and mix it up. They didn't want to be part of the club. These are the Carl icons of the world. Some of the early private equity investors. That has now become institutionalized. But that is a different form of this same type of story of zigging when everybody else is zagging and then winning in the long term. It's just that those stories tend to be much more inspirational and in some way in fitting with the American dream, where you take something that's busted and through ingenuity and never saying die and working hard, you bring it back and maybe revive it to what it once was. So the the business press, I say there are sort of three stories. There's the this thing is the next big thing. This thing has fallen. It's a debacle, and then the recovery slash turnaround. But, but what I find what I find missing uh, that's brilliant and brilliantly put. But what I find missing in it is the the purpose of Wall Street is to allocate capital to socially useful ends. Do I'm, what exactly? <laughs> exactly. But minus that pretense. It has to do that, or else there's no reason. I mean, this the, the, it, it has to do that. That's why there are. Look, we never would have repealed Glass-Steagall. Never in a million years. You can tell me that there ought to be, or or inevitably going to be, a group of young men. Let's be honest about it, uh, who are going to play a gigantic game of poker with risk capital with one another for the sole purpose of enriching themselves and and basically uh, uh, triumphing over their adversary. And that's going to be a permanent feature of American society. And I'm fine with that. Where I'm not fine with it is. Then don't lift the barrier between between uh, commercial retail deposits and mm-hmm. risk capital. Don't create giant banks whose sole purpose is uh, is to is to play uh, that game on a global scale and enrich these people by a magnitude of a thousand times what they were being enriched by twenty years ago. Because the justifying ideology of that, as put forward by Robert Rubin and, and Bill Clinton and Larry Summers, was this: that markets are transparent. This is this is the free Schumpterian freeing up of mm-hmm. capital to socially useful purposes and the creative destruction of old industries that ought to be obsoleted. All of that, if the, all of that justifying rhetoric is false, we need to either choose, we have to choose what we're going to be. We're either going to be cynics or idealists. If we're going to be, uh, if we're going to be idealists and we're going to say that it, that, that it is socially useful and that's why we have, uh, that's why the free enterprise, the oxygen, the bloodstream mm-hmm. of the free enterprise system is capital and we need bankers. Uh, if we're, if we're going to be idealistic about it, then fine, then there ought to be Glass-Steagall. If we're going to be cynical about it we know what these bastards are really up to, there has to be Glass-Steagall, but there's no Glass-Steagall and that's because we split the difference in the way that absolutely screws the American taxpayer. Well, but you, you could be cynical and idealistic at the same time, because when you look back in this past decade, it's very easy to say there's nothing socially useful done. The banks, they all blew up and they inflicted enormous well, harm. Wait, what period are we talking about now? 2000 to 2010. Oh, yeah. Okay. 2008. Nothing socially useful. But I mean, the way I put it is that you know, we like to think that we don't have industrial policy in this country. But How do you mean? 
that you know the way France uh, they allocate capital to we will have a national champion right, okay. in the yogurt industry and we will support them and we will have these strategically important industries that, that we will back and check. Yeah, we won't but, we won't uh, allow our steel industry to die between 1980 right. and 1987. But we did have yeah. industrial policy, and the industrial policy had everything to do with housing, housing finance. And credit and Wall Street. In other words, you know the mortgage, home mortgage interest deduction is worth several hundred billion dollars a year. A huge spur subsidy to housing. There are all sorts of things in the tax code. The existence of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are these government-backed companies that would buy every single mortgage. But these have been around but, for decades and decades. Yes, and but decades. the difference was that from '01 to '05, if you think about the shape of the economy, remember we had the jobless recovery and everything's being offshored and outsourced. Housing was the best place to have a bubble. Why? Because it's intensely local. You buy a house, you pay someone for land, you hire an architect, the the landscape guy comes in, the demolition guys, you buy, buy the stuff from the Home Depot, the mortgage broker, the insurer, the real estate broker, uh, the Wall Street guy who's trading it. At every level of the income ladder, all these jobs are by definition in the U.S. You couldn't outsource the construction of a house. So between the fall of 01 and the spring of 05, something like 40% of all the jobs, the private sector jobs created in America, were related to housing and housing-related finance. Uh-huh. So, you know, to, to use the sort of Jack Nicholson phrase, um, for, you know, w- you needed that bubble. So, but now, but, 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 okay, so the robber barons, they gave us a steel industry, railroads, uh, a transcontinental economy, and gl- a global dominant, and, and by the way, they were philanthropists, they gave us libraries and various other th- <coughs> hospitals, but they, but they gave us an intercontinental economy that dominated the globe for 100 years. The internet, at least in the 90s, all those wankers in their little dot-com offices uh, with the exposed brick and wearing, you know, Converse All-Stars, at least they gave us the infra- information infrastructure to rival the one that... <laughs> Yeah, I'm wearing it. I just checked your shoes. <laughs> they gave us an information infrastructure to r- rival the, the physical infrastructure that had been given us 100 years ago by the Robert Barons. I understand what you're saying, that this was in some ways a, a covert... In, in air quotes, private enterprise jobs program by the Bush administration may have even been consciously that. But at the end of the day, we have a bunch of houses that, that look like, yep. you know, that we have ticky-tack houses. I, I mean, I, I cannot tell you, everywhere I drive in the United States right now, there is ticky-tack housing with Chinese drywall in it that is uninhabited. It is the most inefficient way. It was not... It was not a, a capital allocated right. to socially productive ends. And the question is, and this is a very real question, uh, and I ask it quite seriously, what could we have had if we weren't so obsessed on funneling this money under the guise of free enterprise through Wall Street and had decided to build something instead? How many right. people didn't become, and what I, the lesson I took away from this book is this was a guy who might have been a great doctor, and instead he fucked around uh, trading stocks in order to make money for himself. How many people who could have been neurosurgeons now consult for a hedge fund instead because they can make, I mean, a hundred times more than a neurosurgeon. We're not talking anymore about a hundred times more than, you know, uh, the guy who uh, 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 collects trash at the end of the day. You know, we're talking about a hundred times more than a neurosurgeon to consult at a hedge fund. No one's going to be a neurosurgeon anymore. I mean, these are ma- massive inefficiencies in the economy. If you ask me, Dan, I, I, I hate to sound like a raving uh, Leninist here, but talk me down. Well, at the risk of being self-referential, I did a book a few years ago called Pop, Why Bubbles Are Great for the Economy. And it was about just this dynamic you were talking about, that when you have a bubble that produces this a commercial infrastructure that everybody else can use, like the telegraph or the railroad or the Internet, that's a net benefit because all sorts of things are then constructed on that wreckage. Right? Without the Internet, we don't have Web 2.0 and Google and all this sort of stuff. With housing... 
it didn't really involve the creation of a new type of business or a new infrastructure. It was a lot of the stuff that we already had, just a heck of a lot more of it. But I'd say I'm not, you know, I've heard that argument made, and there were articles in the Times. I'm not that. Uh, I understand that from an economic perspective. That yes, you offer ten times the amount, and then so people, some segment, do it. But I don't think that's a net loss. I mean, do you want a, a doctor who's in it? Solely for the money, or do you want someone who whose passion is uh, healing people? But, you know, the problem and the is same thing with you know. Would you, if uh, historians could make you know four hundred grand a year consulting on history for hedge funds, how much worse would your typical history department be? But 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 it's unclear. We could go back and forth on this all day. I want to bring Troy in, but but we but 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 it's unclear what the long term cost. And we've stopped thinking about long term uh, P and L in this country at every level, uh, from the household, all individual, all the way up to to, to the uh, federal balance sheet. But it's unclear what the long term effect is. What of bra- of brain drain to Wall Street and the creaming effect of of, of everyone going to, uh, that amount of human talent going to Wall Street really is. And if it turns out in ten years that we really have lost that amount. Of ground, I know you're way more bullish than I am about these kinds of things. I'm a, 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 a congenital pessimist, but if it turns out that we've lost an innovation edge, maybe to the Chinese, maybe not to the Chinese, I think we'll be able to look back and point to a period of time in which people created nothing of value whatsoever, and were, they had ceased looking forward and wanted to make the, the fast buck. And that brain drain is one thing we can point out. But Troy, let's let's get back to. Uh, I want to know if there's uh, anything that we don't like about this book. In my own case, I think after that great uh, sort of Las Vegas scene that's right in the middle of the book, that things get uh, a little too long for a while. Although, again, as a generalist, I, I was much comforted by the uh, sort of the clarity and the uh, the frequent uh, restatements of sort of the uh, basic facts of how these financial instruments worked. There's a little bit too much restatement there, you know. As is, there's only so much to be. There are only so many times, really. I think that I think you want to hear these uh, short sellers rant and rave about how foolish and venal everyone else is, despite the fact that they do this in an entertainingly profane way. Did I already mention? I wish there were an index. I wish there were an index too. I, I I hold that against a book. What did you think, Dan? Did you did it grip you the whole way through? It become repetitive at some point. Well, I don't think it's so much repetitive. I just think the the ending. It seems like it's going towards a neat ending, right? That the, the triumph of these guys, uh, and it's it's somehow less than satisfying. You don't you don't get all the numbers you thought you would get. You would like to see these guys either be sort of, you know, emerge out of this as being either lionized or transformed in some way. Uh, one of them sort of quits the business because he's the, the one-eyed Asperger's guy because he's disenchanted with with uh, the, the money management industry. This guy, Eisman, makes a lot of money. His wife says he's become pleasant as a result of that. But you would like to see more of a I don't necessarily just want to say a neat conclusion, but more of a conclusion on how this sort of all played out. Uh, do shorts now have a a bigger status? Are they being embraced? You know, is this a sort of a new industry? The how are these guys being rewarded or punished for you know getting this right? And I don't think there's as much of that in there. Right. You don't think, from a journalistic standpoint, that it's a little too soon to say? Well, I think that's probably right. why. 
that's probably why we don't have more of that. But I was just saying that that would be that would yeah. if I'm looking for sort of a disappointment or a thing that you're left at the end reading. And I think a lot of these crisis books, the kind of huge amount of build up, this crescendo and the climax, and then two pages of wrap-up mm. because it's still unfolding and publishing lead times being what they are. Right. You don't want to go out of limb and say, oh, here's the reform that should be enacted because in the interim, a lot of other stuff could happen. Right. I think that I, I agree with you, Dan. And I would also add that one thing that's sort of disquieting about the conclusion, I I found it pretty nihilistic <laughs> is where the, the book leads us. It's uh, pessimistic about human nature and there's no sort of sense of confidence that uh, sort of despite this debacle that we can sort of trust in government to regulate things better. Um, you know, at some point, looking back to sort of the 80s, Lewis is saying like explicitly that sort of the sort of the reforms that happened were just sort of changing a changing of window dressing mm-hmm. where sort of foundationally the system was bad and is likely always to be so. And also part of the problem is that, um, not part of the problem, part of the depressing thing is that Michael Lewis's vision of things is not one where, it's not one strictly where these bankers are vultures. It's also the, the sort of the lower middle class consumer who's indicted in this sort of most... Um, sort of pungently in the case. Also back to the, I'm not going to shut up about the Las Vegas scene, uh, where someone's talking to sort of a a stripper who has bought five houses as investment properties with a sort of ridiculous sort of floating rate mortgage. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a downer. Mm. (laughs) It's a good downer. And to pick up on that, it's the the downer comes in a couple of different uh, helpings. And, And one is which I thought was interesting is that, 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 and this goes back to the point that Dan was making, that these guys, Lewis was very careful probably for deadline reasons, but for other reasons as well, not to make it seem as though this was a big triumph. He doesn't, he doesn't harp on the payday very much that these guys have for being right, Eisman and, and, and Burry have for being so right. And, and when he mentions it, he says that one of them is profoundly depressed by the sudden presence and abundance of money in his life. And he ends the book on a very similar note. He goes, I thought this was interesting, in the afterword of the book, he goes out to lunch with John Goodfreund, mm-hmm. am I going to pronounce his name right, who was the head of Solomon when Lewis was there, and who Lewis sees as, as not just in a symbolic way, but in a real way, as the person who brought upon the new era in investment banking in the 80s by taking Solomon public, so mm-hmm. that investment bankers were suddenly playing with, in the famous phrase, other people's money. They had been structured as partnerships, and their skin was in their own game, and they took risks knowing that they could wipe themselves out. And once they went public, that was over forever. And uh, Goodfreund was the one who took Solomon public, and, and, and there was a loud outcry when that happened. It's not as though people didn't know what was going on. And he kind of he goes out to lunch with Goodfreund, who, uh, who very famously loses a game of a, a $1 million liar's poker. Yeah. To John Merriweather. <laughs> to John Merriweather in the book, though it's not un- it's not clear that it happened. I think he, to this right. day, says it doesn't. But um, Goodfreund says to him, and it's a very awkward lunch. Uh, they haven't been in the same room for a long time. Goodfreund says very pithily, uh, your book made your career and completely fucked mine, completely destroyed mine. He uses a lot of very 
colorful language with him. Uh, and then there, there's an amazing moment where where uh, Lewis recounts Gutfreund up in front of giving a graduation day address or something at Columbia or some kind of speech at Columbia in which he which he begs the students not to go into finance because it's a me- completely meaningless way to spend your life. And he breaks down in tears at the podium. And this is one of the emotional, uh, this is this is one of the bigger emotional effects delivered by the book. And, and it's sort of the taste that's left in your mouth at the end of the book. Uh, the idea that just being uh, an actor out for oneself in order to pad one's bank account is actually quite a pathetic way to spend your life. So I think the book is unmistakable. And yet, the final image of the book is great. I mean, here Lewis is just being massive. So anyways, the good friend looks at him and says, I think we can agree about this. Your fucking book destroyed my career and it made yours. With that, the former king of a former Wall Street lifted the plate that held his appetizer and asked sweetly, would you like a deviled egg? Until that moment, I hadn't paid much attention to what he'd been eating. Now I saw he ordered the best thing in the house, this gorgeous, frothy confection of an earlier age. Whoever dreamed up a deviled egg? Who knew that a simple egg could be made so complicated and yet so appealing? I reached over and took one. It's the last line of the book here. He says, something for nothing it never loses its charm do you like deviled eggs i don't like the pepper i love deviled eggs but i think that's a little strained because it's it looks like an egg i mean what was done to mortgages would be <laughs> have been like would have been like sort of egg salad Souffle, with like cayenne a, pepper in it an egg salad that not even the chef knows what's in <laughs> and then with a dump, bunch of shit dumped into it um, but i think what, what you're both getting at is you know you compare his recent books that deal with sports especially the blind side, where, you know, redemption comes, the Hollywood ending is, you know, winning a game, winning the World Series, getting drafted. It's a feel-good thing. It's not necessarily zero-sum, although, of course, there's a winner and a loser, but, you know, there's a redemption tale. In this moral universe, which these people operate in, redemption only comes in the form of making money and nothing else. It's not about whether you are right or wrong. It's about whether you made money for being right or wrong. And that's always a zero-sum game because on every trade, there's somebody on the other side. Uh, in this situation you're describing, the, the other trade wasn't just the people who sold the insurance. It ended up being the taxpayers because AIG sold all the insurance. They had to be bailed out. It was the borrowers who lost their homes in foreclosure. So the you know, that combination of redemption only coming in the form of money, of this being a zero-sum game with these guys on one side and basically the whole world on the other, and making a lot of money at a time when the economy is literally collapsing. There's not a whole lot of feel-good in that. That that does not ipso facto boost your self-esteem. I mean, obviously, it does at some level, but you can't enjoy it the way you could making $300 million during a boom year. You know, you do it, and you're you're riding a wave, and you go out and buy the big house, and it's not seen. Maybe it's ostentatious, but everybody else in your peer group is doing it. For these guys now to go out and buy massive apartments and private jets, etc., would not be smiled upon. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In that way, it's yet another very canny book from Michael Lewis. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Total pleasure, Troy. A delight as always. Thank you. And before we go, I'll say I think next. Are you going to be around next time we're doing To Kill a Mockingbird, I can't which turns that. 50? Well, well, you'll be missed. Well, Troy, thanks for joining us. And for the Slate Audio Book Club, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks for listening, and we'll uh, be back next month. Mm-hmm.